Welcome back to After the Fact. I'm Christian Esguera. Joining us now is uh, Mr. Gregory Poling. He's a senior fellow for the Southeast a- for Southeast Asia and the director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Institute or initiative rather at the Center for Strategic and uh, International Studies or CSIS. Uh, good evening and good morning there from Washington. Uh, nice to have you again on the program, Greg. Hey, Christian. Thanks for having me back. Okay. Happy New Year too. Um, Let's start with this uh, purchase by the Philippines of the BrahMos uh, missile system from India. How important is this? And people are saying that this could be a very strong deterrent in the face of China's uh, assertiveness in the South China Sea, including the West Philippine Sea. They also see that that see it that way. This might be the most strategic purchase I think the AFP has made in years because what the Philippine Navy faces, like all navies in the region, is an external threat from China that is just numerically overwhelming, right? Nobody else is going to be able to keep up with China in a boat building contest. What the Philippines benefits from is geography. It's closer to disputed areas like the Kalyan Islands than China is. And so having shore-based assets that can target Chinese boats helps change that mass. It makes China think twice because it could lose a $100 million boat to a $1 million missile. Okay. Now, what's the advantages? What is the advantage of uh, of purchasing a missile system that is shore-based compared to one that is installed on a ship, for instance, or submarine? Well, you can sink a ship or a submarine. You can't sink Palawan. And so it, it creates a survivable deterrent capability that the Philippines won't ever be able to build at sea. And how do you think China would uh, would respond to this purchase? Uh, the Philippines being the third Southeast Asian country with such to have such a capability after Vietnam and Indonesia. I think that Beijing will do the same thing that it always does, which is it will complain. Um, but at the end of the day, this is the Philippines sovereign decision. Uh, the Philippines have every right to modernize its military and defend itself. And if China is not a threat to Philippine rights at sea, then why should China be worried? And what kind of threat are you looking at for which this could be a specific deterrent? Because we know that China is using that uh, gray zone tactics, uh, the use of maritime militia, and that could be a very convenient excuse for them to actually attack if those uh, vessels, even if they are basically a cloak for an actual uh, Chinese um, military capable ship, right? This doesn't change the gray zone strategy. China's going to continue to focus on its Coast Guard and its militia harassment. What the BrahMos missiles and, and in general, what strengthening uh, deterrence, including by, by tightening the alliance with the Americans does is it keeps it in the gray zone. It uh, prevents China from just escalating to the use of military force where it's so dominant. So if you think about a, a potential crisis over Ayun control, if they attempt to blockade or even tear the Sierra Madre off the shoal, or if they ch- decide to finally build a permanent facility uh, at Scarborough Shoal, Bahad Masinlok, in all those cases, you really want to keep this in the gray zone. You want to prevent China from deciding to use its navy. And of course, if you're the Philippines, Vietnam, or Indonesia, we'd also have to show that resolve, that you are willing to use uh, that system if needed, right? That's right. Uh, the and, and ideally, you don't ever want to use it. That's that's what deterrence is all about. You want to affect China's cost-benefit analysis, make China stop and think if this escalation risk is really worth it. 
Okay. Talk to us about the situation now in the uh, artificial islands built by China, parts of which are within the exclusive economic zone of the Philippines. Uh, what's, the th- what's the status when it comes to deployment and construction of uh, military facilities? Before, I remember they started with the radar system, right? So what's the status now? The islands are more or less finished. I mean, they've they've been they were built between the end of 2013 and, and about mid 2016, and then all of the military infrastructure, the runways, the uh, ship uh, refurbishment replenishment facilities, the hardened missile shelters, and the radars, those have been done for years. What China's in now is a pace of regular deployments. So last year, at the height of the pandemic, or rather in 2020, I'm sorry, at the height of the pandemic, we saw China deploying. Uh, it's a high-end surveillance uh, patrol aircraft. So it is now using the islands as a stepping stone to control all the waters and airspace of the South China Sea. Mm. Now, if you have Vietnam, Indonesia, and the Philippines having uh, all having this capability, supersonic cruise missile systems um, that be able to keep China at bay, at least make it really think twice before doing something even more aggressive in that area? This is what the Vietnamese have focused on for years, right? They've purchased things like Kilo-class submarines from the Russians and land-based attack missiles for those subs and a handful of of fourth-generation fighter jets, all of it to make the Chinese forces stop and think if it's really worth escalating to military force. And this is the bloody nose strategy. Nobody's going to, at least in the region, nobody's going to beat China in a fight. The goal is to prevent the fight. And this seems to be uh, the best opportunity to do that. It doesn't solve anything, but it buys time for hopefully diplomacy to work over a years-long process. Hmm. How about for India? What does this uh, purchase mean for India as a player, especially when it comes to its rivalry with China? I understand this is the first ever export of such a missile system for India, and the Philippines is the first buyer. Hmm. So commercially, it's good for India. It, it shows India emerging as a major uh, arms supplier and, and security partner, a, a regional alternative to over-reliance on the U.S. or the Russians, which is what most uh, has really just been dominating the market for, for so many decades. Strategically, it's in New Delhi's interest to see a broad coalition of states push back on Chinese bad behavior. Because if you're in New Delhi, you look at what's happening in the South China Sea or the Taiwan Strait, and you see parallels to what you deal with on your land border in in the Himalayas. In both cases, it's a China who doesn't respect rules. Okay. So in this case, others are characterizing this purchase by the Philippines of this uh... Indian missile system, of course, co-developed with Russia as India's entry in the Southeast Asian neighborhood. And this could also, according to some, trigger a uh, an arms race of sorts. Do you also see it that way? No. The idea of an arms race implies, one, that anybody else is keeping up with China. Of course, they're not. And two, it, it implies that there's some kind of choice here. China has militarized the South China Sea. It built seven air and naval bases in disputed waters claimed by the Philippines and its other neighbors. And now it's dumping missile systems and aircraft and Navy, plus the world's largest paramilitary force into those islands. And the Philippines purchases a handful of missiles and people are going to scream that's an arms race. That that seems absurd to me. 
Mm-hmm. And the, how these, how do these acquisitions you think uh, could affect the complexion of discussions, for example, in the code of conduct, assuming that that is going anywhere <laughs> lately? Uh, how do you think uh, these acquisitions could impact on uh, on those discussions? Well, look, Secretary Luxian in his, his testimony in December made clear that the code of conduct is not going anywhere. Code of conduct hasn't gone anywhere for 25 years. But hypothetically, if it did. Uh, none of this is dealt with in the Code of Conduct. The Code of Conduct is supposed to manage disputes over the waters and the airspace around the islands. Nothing in the Code of Conduct says that regional states don't have the right to defend themselves or to modernize their militaries. Mm. But, but, but I mean, uh, when it comes to the Philippines in particular, uh, this would build uh, an idea that uh, the Philippines is negotiating more uh, from a position of strength. It, it, of course, we're not talking here of actually using those systems against uh, other claimants. Uh, that's definitely not part of the conversation. But in terms of negotiating from a stronger position. That's right. Um, right now, I think Beijing's calculus is that it is winning more and more control over all activity in the South China Sea with every passing day. It has no reason to seek compromise with its neighbors. And the code of conduct process is useful to China because it wastes time. It keeps everybody talking as China uses its Coast Guard and its paramilitary and the threat of its Navy to just take oil and gas and fishing grounds and all the legal rights of its smaller neighbors. If modernization helps the Philippines um, and other claimants stop that, uh, force China to think twice and perhaps realize that compromise is more useful than its current strategy of coercion, then that's the only way a code of conduct is ever going to happen. Okay. And in terms of basically uh, making sure that the landmark victory by the Philippines against China in 2016 would be enforced, would be implemented, would be respected. I mean, what kind of message does this acquisition could send China uh, in that particular direction? Again, I think it is about affecting the cost-benefit analysis that leadership in Beijing is doing. If coercion becomes more and more costly and more and more risky because of the risk that the Philippines can punch back, then diplomacy looks more attractive. Right now, diplomacy is not attractive to Beijing. There's no reason that China should seek to negotiate in good faith or um, uh, try to re interpret its claims to make them consistent with the arbitral award because it pays no price diplomatically economically or militarily it pays no price for its bad behavior in the south china sea they can afford to ignore the philippines uh, on many occasions now this important uh, let's talk about the importance of this uh, report by the u.s state department limits in the seas report by the u.s state department how important is this this was released i think last week uh, basically reinforcing the uh, arbitral award in 2016. That's right. This is really useful. The, the Limits in the Sea is, is kind of a dry, boring, legalistic series. There's hundreds of them now that the State Department does uh, interpreting maritime claims around the world. And they lasted China's in 2014. That 2014 report dismantled the idea of the Nine Dash Line. The State Department lawyers went through every possible interpretation and showed how they would all be illegal. This is an update to that, taking into account the 2016 arbitration and the fact that China increasingly doesn't talk about the nine dash line in polite company. They want to use other words like historic rights. And so the State Department is, you know, redoing the analysis 
to show that China's new language is just as illegal as the old language. So, so that has been the approach of China uh, afterward. They're not using the term nine dash line as much anymore. They're not using it. It's it's interesting that they continue to claim everything within the nine dash line. So when you push a, a Chinese lawyer or official on what exactly the limit of historic rights is, you end up at the nine dash line. Um, it's the same. They just don't say that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, when they when they were harassing the Indonesians a few months ago over oil and gas, if you tr- look at the tracks that the Chinese survey vessels did in Indonesia's EEZ, it perfectly follows the edge of the nine dash line. So obviously, internally, that is the de facto boundary. Chinese lawyers just know that that has become so um, laughable in international circles that they don't use it uh, when they talk to the rest of us. And this is precisely what the uh, arbitral award, coming from the uh, Permanent Court of Arbitration, clarified and assailed and debunked the basis of China's bogus claims, right? That's right. So like the arbitral award, the State Department um, limits in the C study, again, it doesn't touch on the sovereignty disputes. It does not seek to uh, officiate who owns what rock and island. What it says is that there is no basis in existing law for China to make these claims to resources a thousand miles from the shore. If China wants to make claims, it has to do it within the boundaries of accepted international law like everybody else. Okay. Uh, let's try to be more specific. How exactly does the uh, U.S. State Department uh, limits and the seas report reinforce or assail those uh, later iterations of China's nine-dash line argument? I think there's two really important things here. One, it goes through this term historic rights, and it shows that it doesn't exist in international law, in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, or in any customary law in the way that China tries to use it. And so it, it says again that if Beijing wants to make claims, uh, it has to do it with the language that all the rest of us use, exclusive economic zones, continental shelves, territorial seas, and that's it. You can't just make up your own words as an excuse to claim a thousand miles. And in, in that, it really, I think, is a useful reference material. It pulls all of these arguments that have been out there for years together in one helpful place. And so it's going to be very useful for future researchers and lawyers and governments to, to go to. The second thing it does is it really goes after this claim that Chinese lawyers have been developing the last five years of offshore archipelagos, that the Spratly Islands and the Paracel Islands and the other imaginary island groups that China claims, like the Zhongcha Islands in the South China Sea, that they should be treated as some unique regime of international law that should allow China to draw baselines around them and make everything inside internal waters. And that is just wildly out of step with with accepted international law. So the State Department not only tore that down, they issued a 90-page supplement that goes through what every other country in the world uses for their offshore archipelagos to show that China's wrong. So in short, China is peddling fake news before the international community as basis of uh, for its sweeping claim over the South China Sea. Essentially, right. this, is what, this is what's happening, right? Yeah, so to show how offensive this is, um, in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, you have this regime of archipelagos, which was pushed by Indonesia and the Philippines. This is a, a legal concept that emerged out of the early arguments over the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea in Jakarta and Manila. And what was decided was that archipelago nations are unique and may connect all of the islands that surround them with baselines. That's why you have the archipelagic baselines law in the Philippines in 2008. But the limit on that is that the ratio 
of the water that you enclose in those baselines to the land cannot exceed nine to one. So uh, the Philippines had to be very careful, as Indonesia did, as every other archipelagic nation does. China says that that nine-to-one rule shouldn't apply in the Spratlys because China's not an archipelagic nation. China's a mainland, a, a continental nation, and this offshore archipelago, China should be able to enclose as much water as it wants. A conservative estimate would put that at several tens of thousands to one, the ratio of water to land. Hmm. So that in itself, if you're going to speak with reasonable people familiar with what international law says, that's obviously bogus, isn't that the case? It is extraordinarily difficult to find a lawyer who is not based in mainland China who thinks that any of this makes any sense. Now, how is the international community dealing with this kind of fake information, uh, self-serving, obviously, coming from China? And is there even a measure of success in terms of peddling this information before the international community? There's the legal um, track in which states, the U.S., the Philippines, um, some of the Europeans, the Australians, have begun to issue very detailed uh, interpretations, notes, verbal sent to the U.N., and reports like this to establish a record of their objections so that China, no Chinese lawyer will ever be able to go to an international court and say that anybody has ever accepted this, because not only the other claimants, but the wider international community rejected it. And then there's a the public diplomacy piece, right? You need to get the message out over and over and over in ways that undermine this disinformation campaign from Chinese diplomats and lawyers. And this is what uh, people like you are, have been doing, <laughs> Cor- <laughs> correcting uh, those misinform or disinformation coming from Beijing. Well, that's that is part of why our program has the word transparency in in the name um, that, you know, we're trying to be as much as we can an honest broker and present this, this information. And more often than not, this information uh, shows China's official narrative to be false. Okay. Let's talk about the possible impact of this uh, limits uh, in the seas report by the U S state department in terms of dealing with this uh, cross disinformation coming from China. I mean, what kind of situation or influence you see, this particular report having? This report isn't going to, you know, radically change the narrative overnight. But what we've seen for years now has been the slow uh, taking down of Chinese disinformation step by step, right? So in, in 10 years ago, there were people outside of China who honestly bought the idea that the nine dash line had some basis in law or fact. You don't hear that anymore. Um, the idea that historic rights are a thing that, that makes any sense uh, is increasingly falling out of favor. Because what, what Beijing does is it relies on the complexity here. It assumes that most people obviously aren't international maritime lawyers. And so if you just make yourself sound reasonable, then it introduces doubt and people start to think, okay, I don't understand any of this. So maybe China's claim makes just as much sense as everybody else's. When you can present a united global front essentially that says, no, you don't have to understand the rules. Just understand that none of us accept this. We've got 191 other countries who make their claims based on the UN Convention on Law of the Sea and just one country who thinks historic rights make sense. That has an effect. People start to realize that there must be something odd about China's claim when it can't find anybody else to support it. 
Yeah, but I remember this uh, conversation I overheard uh, a few years ago. Ordinary Filipinos talking about this uh, expansive claim by China. I I heard one guy explaining the issue to another very simplistically, and he was actually making a lot of sense. He was drawing a map in that conversation and showing where China was, or China is, where the Philippines is, and the extent of China's claim over areas within the exclusive economic zone of the Philippines. I mean, if you are any, any reasonable, uh, if you are a reasonable person, I mean, it won't be that difficult to at least understand the very basic uh, tenets or, or grounds, right? That's right. What I think is helpful is, of course, you have the legal argument for the lawyers, and we do have to win those arguments in, in courts, you know, international courts uh, for, for years to come. But you have to have a very simple narrative that says, look, there's, a, there's an idea of fairness that resonates with everybody. It, it doesn't, you don't have to understand the intricacies of international maritime law to recognize that if the Philippines gets 200 miles of waters, Vietnamese get 200 miles of waters, why the heck does China get to claim 1,000? And, and the answer is obviously they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And why uh, coastal uh, literal states should have a first crack of the resources within their exclusive economic zones. And countries like China shouldn't uh, actually abuse and meddle with affairs in those regarding those resources. I mean, things like that. Yes, obviously, Philippine fishing grounds should belong first to Filipinos. Philippine oil and gas fields should belong first to Filipinos. And if it's right off the coast of Palawan or Luzon, common sense says that a Philippine claim is stronger than a claim from Hainan off off the Chinese coast. Okay. Greg Poling, thank you very much for joining us tonight on the program. Thank you for clarifying those issues and answering our questions. Thank you, Christian. Have a great evening.